The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Again and again, repeatedly, the evidence all suggests that companies that tackle sexual harassment, that increase equality and diversity, that have greater diversity at the upper echelons of management, for example, um, by any measure of productivity, they perform better, they have better retention of the best employees, they tend to be much more successful companies financially. So it really is in everybody's interest to tackle this. Welcome listeners to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. My name is Yasmin and today's guest is Laura Bates and she really is one of the greatest feminists of our time. That's my opinion anyway and I think she'll be looked back at the greatest feminists of our time. She is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project where women are able to share their experiences of everyday sexism that they experience both in and out of the workplace and in society generally. She also went on to write a book, Everyday Sexism, and her latest book is Men Who Hate Women. What impressed me about Laura is her huge brain and the fact that she's really on the numbers. Her knowledge of the statistics is unbelievable. She's truly ahead of the curve, pre-Me Too, uh, pre-all the conversations we're now having about women and the disparity that exists in society. So in this interview, we're going to talk about the legal industry and the problems that exist with sexism in, in the profession. And you'll note that Laura Her finger is really on the pulse when it comes to the legal industry. Her work is really driven by data. And she says that people don't necessarily think that sexism is a problem in the legal industry, but you'll see that she has the evidence that does support that. But it's not all doom and gloom because Laura has some fantastic recommendations on what to do to improve the culture and to improve the industry as a whole. The Hearing. Good afternoon, Laura. It's an absolute honour to meet you. We're seeing each other on Zoom. And we said before, you know, I'm a bit of a fan of yours, I must confess. Um, I saw you at Wimbledon Book Fest. You gave a great talk about gender equality, um, the work you're doing in schools. Uh, Also read two of your books, um, Girl Up and Everyday Sexism, which I really enjoyed, made me think a lot. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So I wanted to get straight in there um, because, you know, our audience is mainly the legal profession. There'll be a lot of lawyers listening to this. So just tell us about how your work is impacting the legal profession. What is it that you do to help them? Well, um, my work broadly is about um, collecting and testifying to the extent of people's experiences of everyday sexism, which might range from series um, uh, experiences of workplace discrimination, of sexual harassment in and outside the workplace, uh, maternity discrimination and sexual violence, again, in and outside the workplace. And broadly speaking, the aim of the project is to collect such a volume of those testimonies that they force recognition and acknowledgement of the extent of the problem as it remains in today's society. We have hundreds of thousands of entries. And so um, at a general level, it provides a space for catharsis and for women in particular, it is mainly women and girls who send us their stories 
to share their stories in an environment where they are believed and in a safe environment and to feel a sense of community and solidarity and support from others, which often triggers a recognition that actually this isn't something they just have to put up with in silence. But also more specifically, what we found is that we can use the project entries from a particular area to drive change within that particular sphere or profession. So in any given profession and in the legal profession in particular, um, I'm often asked to go into law firms, to organisations and to speak um, more broadly about sexual harassment, about discrimination, about equality and diversity in the workplace, but then to bring to bear on that narrative the specific examples that we've collected from women in that sphere. So in this particular case, from women in the law. And the reason I think that's very important in, in the legal profession specifically is that it tends to be one of the professions where people are most sceptical about the problem existing. Um, there tends to be this assumption, well, it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in my profession. It doesn't happen to women in law. And there are a number of re reasons for that. I think sometimes the very fact that it is the legal profession makes people kind of assume that it's somehow bulletproof or protected from these kinds of experiences. But I also think, ironically, that there is a particular issue with silencing and stigma around these experiences in the legal profession, which means women who experience them, who work in law, tend to be um, very reluctant to feel able to come forward and talk about them. So it really helps to be able to go into a law firm and say, you know, here are 50 experiences that women in law who may be, you know, your colleagues, people you might work with, very much people in your sphere are having. And I think that that can often be quite a big shock, both for individuals and for organisations, but it helps to force a recognition of the fact that the problem really is rife here, as of course in, in every other sphere. Interesting. And, and you say that, you know, the legal profession is probably in a, in a bit of denial about mm. the extent of the problem. I mean, do we have statistics or some evidence, you know, lawyers love evidence, how rife is it, you know, sexual harassment, abuse, how big is the problem? We do have evidence. So at a more general level, we know from a YouGov survey carried out for the Everyday Sexism Project and the TUC um, that over half of women and two thirds of young women say that they've been sexually harassed in the workplace. If you look specifically at the legal profession, there was a study carried out by the International Bar Association a couple of years ago. Um, they found that in the UK, 38% of female respondents working in the law said that they'd experienced sexual harassment. Um, and 62% of female respondents said that they'd experienced bullying. Um, we also know the other stats we have around this specifically are that reports of sexual misconduct to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority have more than doubled over the past five years. Obviously, we have to treat that with caution. It doesn't necessarily mean that the problem has doubled, but perhaps that people are feeling more able to come forward to report it, um, which could be a positive development. But either way, taking those two statistics together, you can see that very clearly the problem is still something that exists and is pressing within the legal profession as well as elsewhere. Mm, and I think that because of the, the killing of Sarah Everard, the rise in the reports of domestic violence, the conversations we're having about abuse in schools, for example, it perhaps has contributed to this mood of you know, determination and anger and people feeling that they want to speak more. Do, do, do you think that that's partly the reason for, for people wanting to come forward about this? 
Perhaps. I think certainly we've seen an increased public conversation around these issues in the last several years, an increased public scrutiny of the problem. I hope that we are nearing a tipping point where we recognise that the problem is significant and urgent enough that it, it really demands attention. And of course, it, it's not just in the best interests of victims and survivors to tackle the problem. All of the data that we have from, from companies like uh, Catalyst, like Deloitte, um, like McKinsey, mm -hmm. again and again, repeatedly, the evidence all suggests that companies that tackle sexual harassment, that increase equality and diversity, that have greater diversity at the upper echelons of management, for example, um, by any measure of productivity, they perform better, they have better to retention of the best employees. Um, they tend to be much more successful companies financially. So it really is in everybody's interest to tackle this. And I certainly think that recent events, tragic recent events, have forced people to recognise that this is a problem that affects women's lives on a daily basis. It affects every aspect of their lives, from their personal lives to their experience in public spaces to their careers. And it isn't something that will go away. And it's great that we're talking about it, but talking isn't enough. The conversation isn't the end point. It isn't the solution in and of itself. And that's really important because it's very tempting, I think, in these high profile conversations to say, oh, great, this is finally all out in the open. So that's fixed now. And you yeah. have these people looking back on the anniversary of, of the kind of resurgence of the Me Too movement and saying, well, it's been a year. Has anything changed? Um, you know, has Me Too really changed anything? And what that question suggests is that it's the women who came forward in their millions with their stories of abuse who are somehow responsible for things kind of magically changing just because their stories have been told. When the mm. truth is the responsibility lies with people who have structural and systemic power, people with the power to make change within organizations, within processes at that kind of macro level and if those people don't take action then it will be just another outpouring of women's stories and we will see that continue to happen again and again. Mm, no, I agree I, I want to sort of come on later as to how we can build that inclusive culture how men can be allies you know male lawyers which is a funny thing to say we say female lawyers so easily but male lawyers sounds strange doesn't it that's an issue in itself yeah. um, so I'll come on to that later but I, I want to look at how big the problem is? What are the main challenges, for example, are you seeing that law firms come to you and saying, you know, Laura, we've got this issue with gender equality in, in the legal profession. Can you help us? What, what kind of stuff are they coming up with? Is it sexual harassment, abuse? What are the other systemic issues? Well, I'd say that one thing that's quite interesting is that the way in which the problem appears to present itself to senior figures within law firms um, might not necessarily be the way in which it's viewed by people experiencing it. So a law firm might notice that they're having an issue, for example, with um, retaining women with a kind of leaky pipeline when it comes to bringing women through to, to positions of leadership. Um, what that might be um, actually the way in which that might manifest itself in the experience of their junior female employees might be experiences of sexual harassment, experiences of discrimination, and it might not be something that they're necessarily aware of how it manifests itself in that kind of practical granular way. What they're seeing is we're losing women and we don't know why. But certainly in terms of the experiences being reported to us by women in law, um, you are looking at a whole range of things, overt sexual harassment, inappropriate sexual comments, questions about people's sex lives. And very importantly, I'd say this is a complex situation because of course, 
there is both internal and client-facing work happening in this profession. So we're talking about women who are experiencing sexual harassment directly from male colleagues and peers, or in many cases from somebody in a senior position. Um, female barristers who've experienced sexual harassment and talk about the fear of the, the nature of that work and the way in which they tend to get referrals and future clients. So a real sense of worry about reputational damage if they speak up about what's happened, about whether or not somebody might be in a position to prevent them from getting cases in the future. So it's a very difficult situation in which for them to speak up. They don't necessarily have an HR department to go to in some cases. Um, we're talking about discrimination from the very beginning. So women who are starting out, who are being given inappropriate instructions on their dress, for example, um, women who are very junior in the profession being told to unbutton their blouses or wear more makeup when they go to client meetings, um, issues around women who do come forward to report not being taken seriously, being asked if they really want to damage their careers by making an allegation, women who experience sexual harassment in client-facing work being urged to, to suck it up, to deal with it, to simply accept it, to keep the client happy. Um, we're talking about women at interview being asked about childcare and family plans. Um, we're talking about women who are being told that they're considered a maternity risk and won't be considered for promotion as a result. Um, and in, in some cases, women who are experiencing sexual assault or rape in the course of their career, um, in the course of their their work. Mm. So it's it's extremely broad and varied and that's important to recognize we're not just talking about a simple problem of of sexist jokes or unwanted sexual attention it really is a wide range mm, mm. and and you mentioned the power imbalance there you know if particularly if a, if a, a female lawyer is junior and she's got a senior person um behaving in this inappropriate way or perhaps a client you've mentioned um i've read somewhere that you said that the, the, the client is always right. There's there's a kind of idea that the client is always right and this can affect women. You've got some views on, on that. What, what specific examples can you give? Yeah, so we quite repeatedly have heard from women who've experienced sexual harassment during client meetings and have explicitly been told that it is their job to keep the client happy, that the client is always right, that if they complain, that client might be lost, um, and, and sometimes have been put under enormous pressure to go back into situations of sexual harassment by an employer or by colleagues in order to facilitate the continuation of that particular relationship. Um, I think in part that we see sexual harassment being taken less seriously than other forms of, of workplace uh, bullying or other forms of workplace incidents. And this is supported by the statistics again. In that International Bar Association report, they found chronic underreporting. Um, but interestingly, 57% of those who experienced bullying felt unable to report what happened. But that number rose to 75% for sexual harassment cases. In other words, people are significantly less likely to report sexual harassment in the workplace than they are to report bullying. And I think that really speaks to the extent to which women fear that they won't be taken seriously or that they won't be believed. And that's something that comes out very clearly in these responses specifically to uh, bullying from clients, this sense mm. of, oh, but it's not that big a deal, but it's more important to retain the client. And that can be enormously damaging because essentially when, a, when an organisation, when an employer doesn't take sexual harassment seriously, even when it's reported, many women then subsequently won't report because they've seen what's 
happen to female colleagues when they do. All those who have reported end up feeling rebuffed, feeling um, aggrieved, feeling often re-victimised by the process. And what women do in that situation is they start to adopt their own coping mechanisms. If the support and the processes and the procedures aren't there to help them cope with it properly, they will find their own ways to cope with it. And of course, this is something women do in their broader lives as well, whether it's walking home with keys between your finger or, or whatever it is. So in the in a professional context, in the legal context, what that looks like is women avoiding particular situations, avoiding particular colleagues, not putting themselves forward for particular projects or roles. Um, it, essentially taking action to try and minimize the extent to which this can impact on their lives and of course that has an impact a negative impact on their careers and there's a knock-on impact there a negative impact on on their employer and on their company so it really is in everybody's best interest to tackle this and in more extreme cases it can have a huge impact on women's mental health it can mean them missing time off work it can mean them being signed off with mental health and in many cases it leads to them leaving whether it might be their whole career or leaving a particular organization or employer as a result and there's a normalization isn't there this is probably why some women don't feel that they can report it because there's a normalization of this kind of thing happening as well you you also have a view about um how particular you know female senior leaders and lawyers are expected to behave and if they are behaving in a certain way they're treated in a, in, a, in a certain way what, what Could you elaborate on that? Because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so generally speaking, one of the things that we see in law in particular, much like politics, I would say, and to a certain extent, business, is that these are fields that have historically been extremely male-dominated. And they are also fields in which uh, certain... Um, forms of of operating, of behaviour have been traditionally lauded and and praised and seen as markers of success. And these tend to be particularly combative, um, aggressive styles of behaviour. It's something we see in the kind of punch and duty of PMQs. And of course, this is something that's particularly relevant in the law as well. Um, The trouble with this is that these are forms of behaviour, which if they are then seen as markers for success, there is often pressure on women to adopt what are traditionally perceived as masculine behavioural traits of aggression, of confidence, um, of what we think of as as leadership qualities. What that often means is that we then blame women for a lack of success or a lack of uh, parity at the top of the profession. So it tends, the argument tends to go, women should be more bullish, women should be standing up for themselves, women should be more aggressive, they should be going after it, they should be putting themselves out there more. If they were more confident, more authoritative, if they were louder, if they were more intense, then we would be seeing them succeed at the same rates as men. And that's why we see so few women who are in these positions. The trouble with that is that the evidence shows repeatedly that when women do adopt those traditionally um, masculine sort of ascribed behavioural traits, we see them punished as a result. So women who adopt exactly those same authoritative assertive, um, uh, confident traits in the workplace where a man is praised for behaving in that way, where he's seen as a natural leader, he's seen as a trailblazer, he's seen as one to watch. Women who adopt those behavioural traits tend to be seen as ball breakers, as harpies, as out for themselves, as cutthroat bitches. And studies have have shown repeatedly that that when exactly the same person is said to have behaved in a particular way, but in one particular focus group, they're given a male name and in another focus group, they're given a female name, the 
people in the focus group tend to think that the bloke seems like a fantastic leader and a great person to work for and someone they'd like to go for a drink with. And when they're told that a woman has behaved in exactly the same way, they seem they say it comes off as a bit too much. She's a little bit too out there for herself. She seems like she wouldn't be much fun to work with. She'd be a real ball breaker to be around and so on. So actually, it's not particularly um, useful to suggest that it's just women who need to adjust their behavior because the the evidence suggests that that isn't the case, that women are kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they don't behave in that way, they're told it's their own fault that they're not succeeding. But when they do behave in that way, they don't tend to see the same rewards for that behaviour that their male colleagues do. Mm. It reminds me of the work that I do. What you've described um, sounds like the deficit model. You know, there's something lacking in yourself. So women in this case that you need to subscribe. assimilate and um, do what the men are doing in order to attain success in, in inverted commas. But as you said, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because you get punished for it anyway. Um, and, and the extension can be made with any minority group. You know, you just have to assimilate Absolutely. to the dominant culture, which can be damaging um, in itself as well. It's exhausting to do that. Interesting. Absolutely. So um, I think we, sorry, Laura, go on. Well, just because you mentioned the kind of crossover there, I think it's really important to say as well that you can see very clearly in the entries that we receive that people who experience both prejudice on the grounds of sex, but also um, other forms of inequality, whether it might be racial prejudice, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, ageism, um, in law, as everywhere else, we see people describing a kind of cumulative and increased Mm. issue when they are at those intersections. So, for example, um, a, a black woman who was in an interviewer when interview when the interviewer started describing to her completely out of the blue his sexual fantasies about what he described as spicy and exotic black women um, or an, an Asian woman who ran into enormous stereotypes in the workplace from male colleagues who were making completely inappropriate comments about um, submissive and, and hyper tame Asian women and so on so I think that's really important to stress as well that we absolutely this isn't something that we see in a vacuum it's very much something that we see having a, a an intersectional impact with other forms of inequality in the workplace as well. Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of research on this. Um, I was involved with the Women in Law project um, with the Law Society, and it's available on the Law Society website about in the intersectionality, as you said, those overlapping identities. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the research shows us the more boxes you tick, if you're black and female, or uh, you could be disabled or female, then you will get more of those microaggressions. You will get more um, of the comments um, Mm. and the stereotypes that people make, um, which is exhausting. So, yeah, absolutely. So we we know from what you've pointed out with the statistics you've given, this is is a big problem. No one can deny that. So I wanted to move on. Um, You know, what can men do? What can men who are in the legal profession do as allies to support gender equality? If they're hearing this and they're thinking, you know, I want to do something to help to support my colleagues, female colleagues, what is it that they can do? Well, that's great. Um, If they are, that's fantastic. Um, The first thing I'd say is that it's worth getting a sense of the scale and the nature of the problem. The great thing about the Everyday Sexism Project is that it's searchable. So you can go onto the everydaysexism.com website and you can type in law or lawyer or even employment law or something about your specific area that you work in and have a look at the experiences of women in your field, which I think can be quite an eye opener and quite useful. 
The next thing I'd say, once you're armed with that information, is that everybody at every level can do something. If you are somebody in a position to affect policy shift, then that is something that can have a massive impact, whether it's looking at your workplace sexual harassment policy, making sure that those procedures are transparent, that they're victim-centered, that they're up to scratch, that everybody on your workplace knows what they are, what their rights and their responsibilities are, making sure, for example, that they don't simply say that somebody has to report directly to a line manager, because in many cases, that might be the person actually carrying out the harassment. So are they really robust procedures? Are they fit for purpose? The next thing I think is looking at policies around flexible working, around shared parental leave, around childcare. All of these are things that can have a massive knock-on impact on that pipeline issue that we've been discussing and describing. Is there more that can be done to support women who are coming back into the workplace after maternity leave, for example? And are men, senior men, taking responsibility for these things? Because in too many workplaces, it's left up to the women. There is this kind of assumption that if a senior woman does manage to break through the ranks then she is somehow responsible for pulling up all the women behind her at the same time as concentrating on her own career. It shouldn't just be up to senior women, but also senior men to be taking that initiative. But I'd also say that at every level, there is something that men can do, even if they're more junior. If a woman is experiencing a, a client-facing situation of sexual harassment and she's finding that she isn't supported, then a male colleague speaking up alongside her and objecting alongside her can be useful. Women who experience these things have a fear that when they complain or when they try to tackle the problem, they might see their career penalised as a result. And actually men putting themselves on the line and speaking up if they've witnessed anything like this can be a really useful way to kind of buffer that. But even at a more minor level than that, a great example we had recently was that there was a woman who was in a workplace where she was constantly being asked to make tea and coffee and asked to take notes in meetings. And she was kind of just being pushed very much into a secretarial role. And she felt frustrated that this was very much a gendered practice and that it was impacting on people's perceptions of her in terms of how likely she seemed to be to be con uh, considered for projects and for promotions. But she also felt that it was something so small that if she objected and said, no, I'm not making the tea, she was worried about being seemed to be you know an overreacting snowflake she had a junior male colleague who wasn't in a position to be able to particularly take action he didn't want to report it because he knew that she didn't want to make a formal complaint but what he realized was that there was something in his control something he could do and he started turning up at the meetings and making the teas and coffees a few minutes early so it was a very simple way for him within the sphere of influence that he did have, which was relatively small, still to do something that made a, a very significant difference to her. So for each of us, at whatever level of the of our career we're at, there is likely to be an opportunity, a moment when we are able to do something that can make a difference. And I think that that's the best way to look at it. Don't think of it as having to take the whole thing on, having to tackle the whole problem. Think of it as, as playing your part, you know, your one small link in the chain, but you can make a big difference. That's a really great example, very powerful. Um, we all have, we're all custodians of culture, aren't we? Our behaviour signals what is acceptable, what is, what is not. And that's a great example of just a small gesture, but actually goes a really long way to show support for our female colleagues. So brilliant. So Laura, this is heavy work. I mean, I want to ask you, what prompted you to, to get into this work? I know you started with um, the Everyday Sexism Project website, which was, I believe it was founded in 2012, um, and things have then since developed. But what, were you, what got you into all of this? 
Um, it started through personal experience. I had a very bad week in which by total coincidence in spring of 2012, um, I was followed home by a man uh, quite aggressively sexually propositioning me and refusing to take no for an answer. Um, I was sexually assaulted on the bus on my way home one night and I was on the phone to my mum. So I said what was happening out loud. I said, I'm on the bus. This man has just groped me and everybody on the bus heard me and everybody looked away. Nobody stepped in. Nobody challenged him. Nobody even made eye contact with me. And I ended up getting off the bus at the next stop, feeling incredibly embarrassed and ashamed and walking the rest of the way home and thinking it must have been my fault. And a few days later, um, I was walking down the street and two men were unloading some scaffolding from the back of a van and, and started just very explicitly commenting on my body and, and talking to each other as I walked past about what they'd like to do to me. And at the end of the week, I sat down and I was thinking about these experiences. And it just it suddenly struck me that if they hadn't happened in the same short period of time, I might never have thought twice about any one of them because it was normal. I was used to that kind of stuff happening. It was just part of daily life. It had been part of being a girl for as long as I could remember. And it was part of being a young woman. And it was just enough to make me start talking to other women and saying, very simply, have you ever experienced anything like this? And I honestly thought that a few people would have a story to tell me. And instead, it was every woman I spoke to. And it wasn't one story from a few years ago. It was, well, on my way to meet you just now, this happened. You know, most days at work, this happens. You know, women who said, well, my male colleagues go to a strip club at lunchtime and take clients there. So I just miss out on those deals. And it was utterly normalized. People said, well, you can't make a fuss because you just wouldn't have a long career at the firm, would you? Everyone laughs it off. It's just banter. It's the way things are. You'd be a troublemaker if you spoke up about it. Or people who said, well, I tried to tell someone and they said I was overreacting. They didn't think he meant it like that. It was just boys being boys. He probably liked me. I should take it as a compliment. What was I wearing? Had I done something to lead him on? There are about a million reasons in the orbit of women's daily lives that they are told again and again and again, don't speak up, don't make a fuss. It's not that big a deal. It was probably your own fault. And as a result of that, there was this enormous conspiracy of silence happening. This was something that affected women and girls' lives every day. And yet, if you tried to speak about it publicly, which I did back in 2012, People said sexism doesn't exist anymore. Women are equal now. We've cracked it. We've achieved it. We have gender equality in the UK. And people really believe that. People will tell you, look elsewhere, look at other countries if you want to find women with real problems. Women here have never had it so good. You don't know how lucky you are. And that mentality really persists in a country where over 85,000 women are raped every year, almost 500,000 sexually assaulted, where one in four women is a victim of domestic abuse and one in five is the victim of a sexual offence, where a woman is killed every three days on average by a current or former partner. So there is just this massive perception gap, really, between the problem and the reality of the problem and our public refusal to acknowledge it exists. And that was what prompted me to start the project. I thought if people could hear all these women at the same time the way I am, they would realise that you can't just brush this off as an isolated incident or somebody who got the wrong end of the stick. This is massive. This is systemic. It's not individual. And so the, the idea was that perhaps if 100 people shared their stories, there'd be an evidence base to point to. And of course, what actually happened was that hundreds of thousand people shared their stories and, and suddenly we had the largest data set and it remains the largest data set of its kind that had ever been collected. 
And that's been very useful, not only in changing the tenor of the public conversation around this over the last 10 years, um, to the extent that we had Boris Johnson using the words everyday sexism a couple of weeks ago in PMQs, um, the, the Times doing an editorial about everyday sexism and recognising its connections to more serious forms of abuse, um, but also in terms of really trying to be uh, specific and targeted so we take these entries from women in the law we go into law firms and we say hey you can't ignore it because look at all these examples we take the experiences of of the thousands of girls who reported sexual assault in school to us and we put them in front of cabinet ministers and said no one's teaching kids about sexual consent and this is what's happening and and that was a big part of changing the the curriculum to make relationships and sex education um, much more significant and compulsory from this year. So it's about trying to use these experiences in a very specific and tangible way to prevent further generations going through the same thing. Mm. It sounds like you were an early adopter having these conversations way before. I mean, Me Too movement obviously prompted those conversations as well. And as I said at the start, the Sarah Everett, the killing of Sarah Everett has um, pr- prompted even more conversations. I remember speaking to my husband saying, you know, on a night out, well, when we used to go out it, before COVID times, you know, do you text your friends, male friends, when you get home? Did you did you get back safely? He said, no, I never bother. You know, just that's just been ingrained into us as, as, as girls and young women growing up, that that's just what we do. Um, just little things like that. It's, it's just increased people's awareness. So what what I want to ask is, you know, are you positive about the future when it comes to gender equality? I mean, how do you know when we've actually got there? Well, I think statistics will help. You know, we we can see the problem very clearly in the statistics at the moment, the statistics I've just mentioned about sexual violence, the fact that half of women are sexually harassed at work, um, the fact that 54,000 women a year lose their jobs as a result of maternity discrimination, um, the fact that there are so few women who are... um, Lord Justices of Appeal or High Court judges, you know, we will be able to to see gender parity emerging through statistical change. But it's also a cultural shift. It's about ideas and attitudes. It's about reaching a point where uh, um, no more young women are murdered. But I think when a young woman is murdered, we can see a lot about the cultural attitudes uh, when not all men is trending for days afterwards and people are suggesting that she must have been to blame because she chose to walk home after dark. I think all of that shows you what a long way we still have to go. And I think that we will be able to see, hopefully, those things shifting or not shifting over time. I feel hopeful cautiously because of the fact that these conversations are happening. I feel hopeful that that we are thanks to the enormous courage of women of all ages coming forward and sharing their stories, we are closer to having a a public acknowledgement and conversation about the issues than we were 10 years ago. But what we haven't done is tipped over into seeing concrete action taken as a result. So the, the public conversation is vital and important, but it's not enough to respond to that with, with hand-wringing, hand-wringing and, and sort of, you know, um, International Women's Day events and, and nice, I don't know, bake sales or whatever it is that some companies do. It, it needs to be real concrete action on on policies and procedures. It needs to be systemic shift if we want to see actual change happening as a result. Sure. And Laura, I could speak to you all day. This, this is a massive subject, but I wanted to end on your book because I wanted to give it a plug. I will be getting it. It's <laughs> called you. The Men Who Hate Women. So 
just very briefly, what prompted you to write this book and talk us through the research that you had to do to, to write it? The book is very specifically um, about a network of extremist misogynist communities. Um, it's not about men as a whole. It's not men hate women. It's men who hate women. And it's a it's a kind of undercover expose, really, of a, of a terrorist movement, of a form of extremism and radicalization that almost nobody knows about. And that's absolutely mind-blowing. These are men who don't only gather in their hundreds of thousands online to spread hatred um, about women, to spread conspiracy theories and completely false statistics about them, um, but who also act on those theories and, and ideologies. So these are men who have gone offline and have massacred women over the last 10 years, men like Elliot Roger, um, massacring women in Santa Barbara, California, men like Alec Manassian, uh, who drove a speeding rental van through pedestrians in Toronto, deliberately aiming for women, murdering 10, seriously injuring 16, 80% of the victims, women. Um, men like um, a teenage boy, Ben Moynihan here in the UK, who went on an attempted murder spree, stabbing three different women over a period of two months. In fact, I've traced this specific ideology to over 100 murders or serious injuries in the last 10 years alone. So this is a hate movement. It is seeing women killed, massacred very deliberately um, in order to spread terror, in order to um, commit, to promote an ideology against a specific demographic group, uh, in order to create cultural change that these men want to see. In other words, it ticks every possible box for international definitions of terrorism, but these men are not described as terrorists, they're not treated as terrorists by the media, and they're not charged as terrorists, except in one, one case, there is one exception to that. Um, what that means is that they aren't on the radar of any counter-terror organizations, they aren't on the radar of people who are training and funding teachers to prevent children from being radicalized. And yet what was most concerning in my research is that these groups, uh, such as incels or so-called involuntary celibates, men who aren't having sex but would like to be and believe that women should be massacred as a result, they are very deliberately radicalizing and grooming boys online, boys as young as 11, and they are doing it very systematically and deliberately. And in my experiences of working in schools with young people, I saw a very dramatic uptick in the number of boys coming forward very clearly holding these ideologies, extremely hostile to any conversation about equality or about women's rights, um, believing honestly that the vast majority of rape allegations are false, for example, um, coming with bogus statistics about men being the vast majority of victims of domestic abuse. It was at that point that I decided to write the book because I realised that not only is this a terrorist movement that is seeing women massacred, um, but it's also a terrorist movement that's starting to have a very effective grooming um, scheme for, for young boys. And if people don't know it exists, then that puts them in a very vulnerable position because it means that there isn't anybody supporting those boys, offering them alternatives or preventing more massacres from happening in the future. Mm really heavy work I just wanted to end with this is and this question to you how do you offload in a sentence what makes you happy because this <laughs> is really takes its toll doesn't it um, diving into this researching um, learning about all these what's going on in the world 
How does Laura Bates unwind? <laughs> well, I do have a life outside it. Shocking as that might be to many people. <laughs> Good um, to hear it. Yeah, I love cooking and I love being outside and, and I have a very, very supportive um, network of friends and family. Um, oh. But I also think there is a great deal of hope. There are a great number of really positive stories of women in so many different ways and girls who are finding ways to stand up, finding ways to try and change things. Um, you know, I visited one school where girls have been told that they couldn't wear leggings because it might distract the boys in a maths lesson. And they came back to school with placards the next day and picketed the school with these signs that said, um, are, my, are my leggings lowering your test scores? Um, you know, <laughs> girls are finding increasingly innovative ways to force people to listen and to recognize what they're up against. And we are seeing a, a real global wave of solidarity for women around the world who are standing up to this stuff and saying enough is enough. So there is every reason to be hopeful as well, but we have to recognize the scale of the problem. I think if we're going to find a solution, we can't turn a blind eye and bury our heads in the sand. And that means um, looking at these very difficult and upsetting things and, and and forcing ourselves to confront them. Thank you, Laura. That's a great place to end. I think we can't be complacent. We have to face the problem because it's a big problem. At the same time, we can also afford to be hopeful as well. Thank you for being such a great guest. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Hearing. Thank you so much for listening. And as ever, we would love to hear your feedback. Like and subscribe. And also, if you've got any thoughts, if you think about topics you want us to explore, or maybe you want a guest to be interviewed and you're dying for them to be interviewed, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.